1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, that's where we will be looking at this morning as we continue our study through 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can grab one from the pew and, and follow along with me. It can be found on page 961 in our pew Bibles. Uh, but we'll be looking mainly at verses 1 through 11 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In December of 1835, a group of Texan volunteers devoted to Texas war with Mexico for independence uh, captured a Mexican garrison uh, we know as the Alamo. And they took control of that garrison, or they captured that garrison, took control of the fort. And with the fort, they also took control of San Antonio. But in mid-February, word came that Mexico was bringing an army to San Antonio. And the request for reinforcements and more soldiers to help guard the Alamo went unheeded. Not because they didn't want to, but because they really didn't have the soldiers to provide. And nearly 200 soldiers stood to protect and defend the Alamo. And for 12 days, the Mexican army sieged the fort, sieged the Alamo. And on March the 6th, the 13th day of the siege, they broke through a breach in the outer wall and... The Mexican army took control of the Alamo and all but just a very few people who were defending the Alamo paid freedom's ultimate price. They were killed. Among those who were killed were the frontiersmen and, and uh, former congressman of Tennessee, Davy Crockett. But they died fighting for freedom. Uh, the general, Santa Anna, then took control of the fort, took control of San Antonio. And for two months, Mexico controlled San Antonio. Then, in May, Sam Houston led 800 Texan volunteers, again, into battle. Not at the Alamo, but this time at San Jacinto. And defeated a much larger Mexican army. Uh, Santa Ana was captured during this battle and because of his capture, they were able to lay the terms which would ultimately lead to Texas independence from Mexico. But do you know that when the soldiers began battling in San, uh, San Jacinto, what the rallying cry of the soldiers was? The soldiers who fought that day and fought for freedom could be heard yelling over and over and over again, remember the Alamo. Remember the Alamo. As they battled, they remembered those who had paid the ultimate price for freedom. They remembered those who had died. And the Alamo itself became, even in defeat, a symbol of liberty, of sacrifice, and of independence. And thus, it spurred them on to victory and ultimate independence. Well, what we have in 1 Corinthians 15 is the Apostle Paul sounding forth the rallying cry to the church at Corinth. And his rally cry is simple. And it is this. Remember the gospel. 
Now, unlike Sam Houston and the soldiers who, whose rally cry at San Jacinto was to remember a defeat for the cause of liberty, Paul calls the church to remember the ultimate victory for the cause of liberty. You see, when we remember the gospel, we are not remembering some defeat in history. We are called to remember the victorious, death-overcoming, sin-defeating, hell-conquering Savior and Lord and what he did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. And thus, as we read this passage of Scripture this morning about the story of all stories, may we never forget to remember the gospel. Paul begins in verse 1 with these words. Now, I would remind you, brethren, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. What is the gospel? The word gospel itself, in even secular terms, has become synonymous with the word truth. If I tell you something, and I think there is the slightest hint of doubt, I may modify my statement with these words, and that is the gospel truth. Or, if I'm telling you something that is an anchor truth, I may say, and that is the gospel. But my question is, is that the gospel? Of course, Bible readers and Christians know that that is not the gospel. The gospel is just not a word that is synonymous with truth. The gospel in and of itself, is a message. The word gospel it comes from a Greek word which means glad tidings or good news. And when you read through the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. It is the good news of what God has done through Jesus to save sinners and reconcile us to himself. That's what the gospel is all about. It's what God did through Christ in order to save sinners and reconcile a group of rebels, us, to himself. Now, nearly 2,000 years ago, there was a church in Corinth. And that church was filled with chaos and 
controversy and confusion. They had questions about marriage. They had questions about tongues. They had questions, concerns, and controversies over divisions that were in their midst. And they even had a question when it came to the resurrection of the dead. There was much confusion about the resurrection. Some said that the resurrection had already occurred, like in Thessalonica. Some thought the resurrection hadn't occurred yet. Some didn't know how it was possible for a dead person to be resurrected and raised from the dead. It just did not make sense to them. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes to them to, first and foremost, to address the confusion over the resurrection. But before he ever addresses their specific confusion over the resurrection, he reminds them of the gospel that they had believed at the beginning. And he understood that all the chaos, all the controversy, all the confusion had pushed the gospel to the periphery in their vision. It had pushed it to the outside when it should have been central. As Paul said, it is that which was of first importance. And he wants them to know, you shouldn't have a problem with the resurrection because if you remember the gospel, you will know that we are saved because we believe a message about the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul wants them to remember this glorious gospel of what God did through Christ to save sinners and reconcile us back to himself. Now, what does he do here? Well, I think in this passage of Scripture, he's going to give us no less than three reasons why we should never forget the gospel. Three reasons why we should always remember the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow these truths to anchor our hearts, to hold us, and to make sure that they never get pushed to the periphery of our life, but that they are the hub and the center of our life. Paul, in this passage, shows us that we must remember the gospel first because the gospel is a powerful message that must be declared in verses 1 through 2, Paul gets a little historical with the Corinthian church. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You know, the good news of the gospel was not foreign news to the Corinthians. In Acts 18... Paul, on his second missionary journey, goes into the city of Corinth and he preaches the gospel. At first, he has great opposition to the gospel. So much so, Paul wants to leave the city. But God reminded him, don't leave yet. I've got many people in this city. Stay and preach. And so what did Paul do? He stayed in the city of Corinth for 18 months, declaring and preaching the word of God unto them. And something amazing happened as Paul shared the gospel in Corinth. Sinners heard the gospel. Sinners believed the gospel. Sinners were saved by the gospel. And a church was established on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is telling them, remember what it was that I first preached to you. Now, I said that the gospel is a powerful message. In verses 1 through 2, we see three pillars of its power, how it works and why it is so glorious and such a powerful message. We see first that the gospel's power is displayed in the gospel's proclamation. Look what he says. I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached 
to you. The word I preached is the Greek word euangelizo, and it means to be one who bears the tidings of good news. Paul says, when I came to you at Corinth, I came with the gospel. I came as one who declared good news. And you know, as a preacher of the gospel, as one who shares the gospel with others, we all have one responsibility, and that is to share that gospel message. And God's made it easy for us. He's told us not to dilute the message. You don't have to distort the message. You just have to declare the message of the Lord Jesus Christ because the message in and of itself is powerful enough to save sinners. God doesn't need us to outsmart the world. He doesn't need us to, to, to twist or to, to, to adjust the gospel to where a world will, will, will like it. No. Paul, God says we have a responsibility to share, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are all news tellers, if you will. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, tells us that God is pleased when this happens. That it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save them that believe. It's a foolish message to the world. But it is one that saves sinners. So what are we supposed to do? We are to proclaim the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel is simply this. One person has said, it's one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. That's what proclaiming the gospel is about. But secondly, we see the gospel's reception. What happened whenever Paul preached? Well, he says in verse number one, which you received. The English word you received is the Greek word paralambano, and what it means is to welcome as a guest. Paul says, here's what happened. I brought the gospel, I preached the gospel, I shared the good news, and the good news found hearts that was willing and a, that was willing to receive it, welcome it as a guest. Now, if we know anything about the human heart, we know that the human heart one, is unable, and two, unwilling to receive this gospel message in and of itself. In Sunday school with the teens this morning, we saw that our default position is rebellion against God. In Revelation uh, 8 and 9, when God unleashes uh, his wrath upon this earth, do you know how the world responds? I asked the teenagers, I said, how do you think they ought to respond? Well, about every one of them said they ought to repent. They ought to, they ought to believe. They ought to call out to God. I said, exactly. It makes sense to us. But you know how they respond? They continue to follow their idols. They continue to follow their sin. They do not repent, Revelation says. Because in Revelation, what you find is God, in his judgment, gives man exactly what he wants. And man on his own never wants God. So how in the world... Did the Corinthians receive this message? Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 3? That no man can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. As Paul preached this gospel and that gospel went forward, the Holy Spirit of God did a work in the hearts of sinners to convince them of their sin, to convict them of their sin, and to change their disposition toward God. To go from one who was running from God to one who now runs to God. And when that happens, sinners are saved and conversion takes place. 
I also asked the teenagers this morning, those who were saved, I said, do you remember when you got saved? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you remember wanting to be saved when you got saved? And they said, yeah. I said, let me ask you something. Did you want to be saved like that before you were saved? Any time before that time? I could see the wheels in their head spinning and thinking. And they said, no. Uh-uh. I said, well, then what changed your mind? Or who changed your mind? And the answer to that question is the Holy Spirit of God through the proclamation of the gospel. And so it is such a powerful message that just by proclaiming it, it opens the door of sinners' hearts to where they are willing to welcome a message that they had previously rejected. And when that happens, we see the gospel salvation because Paul says, and by which you are being saved. The word saved there means to be delivered. The idea is that when we are saved, we are saved from our past sins. We have been saved from sin's penalty. It is that we are being saved. If you look at the tense of this verb, it's in the present tense. You are being saved. The idea is that we are presently being saved from sin's power as we grow in sanctification and in Christ's likeness. The, the, the grips of sin should be losing somewhat its, its hold on us as we are being saved from those temptations and sins. But there's also a future aspect to our salvation where we shall be saved from the very presence of sin when Christ returns and we receive glorified bodies and we are raised in his likeness. But the idea is this. There's only one message in the world, only one news source in the world that can save man from their sins. Sean Hannity and Britt Humes don't have it. Chris Matthews and Rachel Maddow don't have it. Fox and Friends and Morning Show, Morning Joe, they don't have it. Fox, CNN, Headline News, they don't have it. It only comes from one source, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news from a far country, and only Jesus Christ is able to save from our sins. Scripture says, neither is there any name in any other, salvation in any other name, for there is no other name in heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is so glorious that as I preach the gospel, I can say without reservation that sinners can be saved through this gospel, that transgressors can be forgiven through this gospel, that prodigal sons and daughters can find a place at Father's table through this gospel. And we must remember the gospel, beloved, because the gospel is a powerful message that must be declared. Don't ever forget the proclamation of the gospel. But secondly, the gospel is also a particular message that must be defined. Now, up to this point, I've given you a broad definition of what the gospel is. It's the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ to save sinners and to reconcile them to himself. But what about the specifics? How did God do what he did through Jesus Christ? Well, so here's what I want to do. I want to first give you a point that's not even anywhere on the text. And then we'll jump back into the text. 
First, if we, as we consider the particular definition of the gospel, I want you to understand what the gospel is not, okay? Because there's a lot of folks out there who wonder about the gospel or who are trying to get to heaven, and they're trying some other way other than the gospel. For instance, the gospel's not God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that? They say it as if it is good news. But the only problem with that in Scripture is we don't have the strength to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can't help ourselves according to Scripture. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. The gospel is not keep the Ten Commandments. You hear people all the time, are you saved? Well, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, and they they are sincere in that. And I think they're sincere in that. And their hope is that by trying to keep the Ten Commandments, that God will welcome them into heaven when what they don't realize is Trying to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments is the worst thing you could ever possibly try to do because we've all broken the Ten Commandments. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God Almighty and, and, and just breaking one commandment makes me and you a transgressor of God's law. And in order to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, you've got to t- keep all ten, all time, without ever breaking one of them. And no one has ever done that. So trying to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, that's bad news. Or there are those who think, I will do my best. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then God will let me in to heaven. You know, they're moral people. They, they pay their bills. They love their neighbor. They they they. They do what is right in the eyes of the world. They look at Christians and they say, I don't do what they do and I have better morality than them. And so surely when I stand before God, all my good deeds will be put in a scale. All my bad deeds will be put on the other side. And if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, God will let me in. Well, the only problem with that is if we take every good deed we have and we put it on the scale here, and we put one sin on the scale over here, then the scale is tipped towards sin and it cannot be equaled out by anything that we do. And furthermore, Scripture says this about our good deeds. There is none that does good. No, not one. None of us are good. None of us deserve anything. So the idea that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, their hope is that they will be able to earn heaven. That's not the gospel. That's bad news. That's what lands every single one of us in the pits of hell for an eternity. So that begs the question, what then is the gospel? So let's consider what the gospel is. Paul defines the gospel specifically for us in this passage. There's four steps Paul takes when describing or defining the gospel. The first is this. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. Look what he says in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures. The word for is the Greek preposition which signifies purpose. And Paul is saying it is good news to know that Jesus died for our sins. He died on behalf of our sins. What does that mean? It means that he died as a substitute. He died for our wrongs. 
He died for the deeds that we had done that displeased God. He died for our transgressions. And he died in our place. Peter put it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That when Jesus died, Justin should have died. That when Jesus felt God's wrath on the cross, Justin should have felt God's wrath on the cross. He who knew no sin on the cross became Justin's sin on the cross. The hymn writer said it best when he said, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut the glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man, the creature's sin. It is good news that Jesus died for our sins. But the gospel doesn't stop there. The news story continues. It's good news that Jesus was buried. Look what Paul says. And that he was buried. Normally Rome would just take the crucified body and throw it in a trash dump outside the city and they would burn it to get rid of the bodies or they would just leave the body on the cross. For anybody who would think twice about crossing Rome, they'd let the buzzards and let the vultures pick the flesh off the bone. But this was different. Uh, Jesus was was crucified during a Jewish feast. Pilate didn't want to cause a ruckus, so they determined to take him down uh, before, the, before the Jewish feast began and uh, before the Passover. And so they took him down and they buried him in Joseph's borrowed tomb. We know from the gospel account that Joseph of Arimathea went and begged for the body of Jesus Christ. And when he got the body, they washed his body, they prepared his body, they wrapped his body, and they laid his body in Joseph's tomb. The Bible says that it was a tomb in which never a man had laid. Isn't it interesting? The gospel begins with Jesus entering into a womb, a virgin womb. And at the end of his life, he's laid in a virgin tomb, and there he is, buried. But if the news ended there, the gospel would not be the gospel. It would not be good news. But there is more to the story. And what's left is this, that Jesus was raised on the third day. For three days, his body lay lifeless in a cold, damp, dark tomb. For three days, his disciples fled in fear. For three days, people wandered. For three days, soldiers guarded a tomb. Who guards the tomb of a dead man? But Rome did. But can I tell you something glorious happened on that Sunday morning? What happened was that the Father looks down from heaven and he looks at the body of his Son and he says these words, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. He turns to the angels and says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And he turns back to the sun and he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the same Spirit of God who touched the virgin womb of Mary and Christ 
the eternal Son of God, was incarnate in her. That same Spirit quickened and touched the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. And as he quickened him, his Galilean leg began to twitch on the right side and twitch on the left. His lungs filled with air. His eyes opened to see the inside of a dark tomb. With his hands, he reached up and he pulled the napkin that was off of his face. He rolled around, sat up and took off his gray clothes, even folded them neatly and laid them on that cold stony slab. He turns toward the stone that Pilate and Rome had rolled against the door and sealed three days, soon, three days earlier. And something marvelous happens. The earth begins to shake and reel and rock like a drunk man out of control. An angel ascends down from heaven and the sight of the angel scares the Roman soldiers into unconsciousness and they fall asleep. And the angel takes hold of the stone and rolls that stone back and out from that tomb comes walking the Son of God who was carried in three days earlier alive and well. Beloved, that's good news. He died, but he's not dead anymore. He is alive. The Bible says he was delivered for our offenses. That means he died because of our sins. But he was raised again for our justification. Which means the fact that he walked out of the tomb. Means that I can be forgiven. Because the fact he walked out of the tomb. Is the way in which the father said. Yes. I accept your sacrifice for sin. And now sinners can be forgiven. Jesus was raised from the dead. But the good news doesn't stop there. What would have happened? If Jesus had been raised from the dead and then called straight up into heaven, biggest question in history would have been where'd he go? But Paul tells us, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. And the rest of the story is this. He didn't just die. He wasn't just buried. And he wasn't just raised from the dead. But he appeared to witnesses. Look what he says two times. He says that he appeared in verse 3. To Cephas, then to the twelve, and verse 6 says, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now, what Paul does here is Paul calls in his witness list for the resurrection. And by the way, have you ever thought of this? There's no eyewitness of the resurrection except heaven, probably hell even. No human saw the resurrection. The soldiers were asleep, the disciples were hiding, the women were mournful, and no one could say, I saw Jesus walk out of the tomb. So what, does, what happens after that? Well, because of that, Jesus knew he wanted to leave himself witnesses. And so what did he do? He appeared to people after the resurrection. We know he appeared to Mary and the women as they were heading to the garden tomb to anoint his body. But Paul mentions here some specifics that he appeared to. One is he appeared to Cephas. Now this one marvels us. Cephas there is Peter. Uh, I call Peter the failure. Peter was the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Every time he spoke, he stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter was the one who boasted. I'll never deny you. And yet, denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. 
Peter was the one who, when Jesus finally appears to the disciples, he has to tell the disciples, I'm going to appear to you in Jerusalem and also to Peter. Because if there was any disciple who thought that he didn't deserve for Jesus to appear to him, it had to be Peter. You know, the resurrection, him appearing to Peter, is one of the most glorious pictures of grace in all of Scripture. That Jesus appears to those who have failed. He appears to those who have dropped the ball. He appears to those who are what we would consider the greatest failures of all. He appears to Peter. Then he appears to the disciples, the, the fearful ones, if you will. These men who spent three days hiding out, <laughs> afraid Rome was going to come do to them what they had done to Jesus. And, and they were scared and they were afraid of what had happened. But yet Jesus appears to them one after the resurrection. And then again, he appears on a Sunday evening. A week later, he appears to show Thomas exactly who, it is, who he is. And even says to Thomas the doubter, stick your fingers into my hand and thrust your hand into my side. And Thomas confessed, oh, my Lord and my God. Jesus says, you believe because you have seen, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Thomas was convinced. And then he says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now, these are a nameless group of people, but 500 is a pretty good number. Matter of fact, Paul said, as he wrote this, some of them still alive, most of them still alive at this time. Don't believe me? Call them up and ask them if they saw Jesus after he was resurrected. Some of them's fallen asleep. Some of them's dead. But the most of them are alive. You don't have to take my word on it. Take their word on it. And then, this one's amazing. Verse 7 says, he appeared to James. Now, this is not James, the, the disciple James. This is Jesus' half-brother James. Do you know Mary and Joseph had children? Yeah, they had children after Jesus was born. And one of their names was James. And you know what the scripture says about Jesus' brothers? They did not believe in him. Now think of that. They, his own fleshly brothers didn't even believe in him. I mean, could you imagine James growing up? Well, Jesus is perfect. He never does anything wrong, Mom. It'd be kind of hard to walk in his footsteps. But there was that natural tendency to not believe in him. And so after his resurrection, what does he do? He appears to his fleshly brother, and he believes. Rabbi Zechariah said he believes this is the greatest, apart from the Apostle Paul, this is the greatest conversion in the New Testament. When his own brother believes in him, and it should serve us well to show us that we too ought to have a burden for our families and those who are close to us, because Jesus did. And then Paul says he appeared to me. And we'll get to that one in just a minute. But if I, you do the math correctly, that's at least 513, 514 people Paul says Jesus appeared to. Can you imagine going into a court case and the witness list being 513 people? Eyewitnesses? You know what they'd say? That's a slam dunk. That's a slam dunk case with that many eyewitnesses. Many, many juries decide the verdict based on the witness of one person. But this is over 500. Listen, that's there for us to know that the gospel we believe is not some cooked up story. It's not some fable. It's not fiction. It is rooted in historic fact. 
And so we define the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, the good news of what God has done through Christ to save sinners and reconcile us to himself is that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared to witnesses. But that's not the only reason we need to remember the gospel. Thirdly and finally this morning, we need to remember the gospel because the gospel is a personal message that can be experienced. In verses 8 through 11, Paul moves from what other people saw, Jesus appearing to other people, to Jesus appearing to himself. And he says this, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now Paul is going to get personal. You know, the good news of the gospel is a theological message, rooted and grounded in who God is and what he is like. It's a historical message. History verifies it. Uh, There's history of Jesus. There's proof Jesus lived. But you know what? You can listen to the theological news. You can read the historical news about Jesus. But it all changes when it becomes personal to you. And what I love about this personal message is that this personal message, it's often experienced by those who least expect it. Look what Paul says. He appeared also to me. How? As one untimely born. That was a word that was oftentimes used of a woman who is carrying her child. And all of a sudden, from out of nowhere, unexpected to her, she breaks forth into labor. And labor comes upon her unexpectedly, out of nowhere. You know what Paul is saying here? I was the last one to expect to be saved when I got saved. Now, that's probably where a lot of us were at whenever we got saved. If you got saved in a church service, odds are, unless God was already doing something in your heart, when you showed up at church that morning, that night, whenever, you didn't walk through the door saying, you know what, I think today's a good day, I'm going to get saved today. No, you were more shocked than anybody when you got saved. Because you know what you did? You calculated like everybody else calculated. They're going to sing X amount of songs. They're going to do this. I can put up with a preacher for 45 minutes or an hour. They'll sing another song. And then I'm out. I'm eating. I'm watching television. And I'm done with this place. But something stopped you in your tracks. Paul was on his way to Damascus with letters of intent in his hand to kill Christians. When there was a light that shone brighter than the noonday sun. And he heard Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And immediately his attitude toward Jesus was changed. Lord, who is this? And Jesus said, it's Jesus whom you are persecuting. You know, it was such an unexpected conversion that when the church heard that he had been saved, they didn't believe it. No way. Saul of Tarsus got saved. You know what he's doing? He's just trying to get in the church. He's he's wanting to be a spy for the Jews in the church. No way. Matter of fact, God had to send him to Ananias, and then Barnabas had to come along and help him before the church would even believe that he'd been saved. How's that for raining on your spiritual joy? But it's because he was so wicked. He was so sinful. And yet, doing something completely contrary to anything spiritual, God stopped him in his tracks and he saved him. 
I prayed this morning when I woke up, God, do this to someone else. Oh, you will not see the sun shining brighter than the noonday sun. You will not hear an audible voice from heaven. But my prayer today is that while you were here, you may have come unexpectedly. You may have come thinking, I can endure this because somebody invited me or I just come to church this morning. But my prayer is this, that God surprises you with the gospel and opens up your heart to the truth and you believe it and you trust him and you are saved today. That's my prayer. Oh God, shock us. Shock us. It can be experienced by those who least expect it. But secondly, it's always experienced by those who least deserve it. Look what Paul says. I am the least of the apostles. There's his humility. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. There's his honesty. You know what Paul is saying? If it comes to deserving heaven, if it comes to earning this salvation, I'm out. I have no hope. You want to know my past? You want to know about my sin? I've killed Christians. I've testified against Christians. When the first Christian was killed, I held the coats of those who threw the rocks. I wanted to give my life to putting the church out of business. That was my goal. Many Christians are in heaven now because I was the one who killed them. And yet, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you know grace means God pours out his blessings on us when we do not deserve it in the least? You could take the good that is in every single person in this building and put it into one human, and that one human would not deserve salvation. Do you know the only way you're getting to heaven? Same way I'm getting to heaven. By the grace of God, I am what I am. This grace is powerful. From a persecutor to a preacher, from an antagonist to an apostle, from a troublemaker to a trophy of God's grace, it transforms Paul. And now the one who labored to put the church out of business is laboring to make sure that the church and the glorious gospel is going forward for all to hear it. But this morning as we gather here we've shared the gospel we've sang about the gospel we've read prayers about the gospel we, we have prayed the gospel but I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 11 whether then it was I or they so we preach and so you believed so we preach and so you believe today I think the first part of that phrase has been done so we preach we proclaim the gospel I've told you the gospel we've sang the gospel but I wonder about the last part so you believed let me ask you do you believe the gospel I'm not asking you, will you try hard to be a better person? I'm asking you, do you believe the gospel? I'm not asking you if you try to keep the Ten Commandments. I'm asking you, do you believe the gospel? I'm not asking you if you are trying to quit some bad habits. I'm asking you, do you believe the gospel? 
I'm not asking you if you are moral, more so than a neighbor, more so than a church member. I'm asking you, do you believe the gospel? Here's why that's so important. Hell will be filled with people who tried hard, who attempted to keep the Ten Commandments, who even turned over a new leaf and quit some bad habits, and they even changed some in this world. And they were moral, more moral than many other folks. But they'll be in hell because they could not say these words. I believe the gospel. And so today, I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to bring all your weight, all your guilt, all your shame, all your regret, all of your sin to one place. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And to bring it with this assurance that if you believe the gospel, And if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, He will forgive you of your sins. He will remove the stain and the shame and the guilt of your sins. His Holy Spirit will come into your heart and you will be made anew if you will believe the gospel. So in a moment, we're going to get a song. We're going to stand. And I'm going to ask you, if you believe the gospel, and you've never confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior before, I'm going to ask you to come forward this morning. And I'm going to ask you to confess Christ as your Lord, that yes, you believe the gospel, and you trust Him as your Lord and as your Savior. You've repented of your sins, and you, you believe the good news. Let's pray.